Welcome to the weekly podcast of Valley Church. I pray that this message will fill you with the hope of the gospel and will help you follow Jesus today. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, visit valleychurchwv.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Before we get into the word of the Lord, uh, let's just have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ for the purpose of knowing you better. And so, Lord, as we continue our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, Lord, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts and that you would, every day, conform us more and more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been with us, or if you have been with us, I'm just going to catch you up on where we are. The last four weeks, we have been in the book of 1 Corinthians. That is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that he had established. And some years later, he, had, he was away from the church, and he had received a letter about the condition of the church. And so Paul is writing in response to the news that he had heard that the church just wasn't doing well. And so the last four weeks, Pastor Jonathan and Precious They taught us how this church was very boastful, they were very arrogant, they were very prideful, and the culmination of all those sinful characteristics led to the the main theme of the first four chapters, and that was church division. So in James 3.16, he catches the essence of what was going on in the church of Corinth perfectly. He says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So that's what we see going on in Corinth. So Paul, like I said, he's writing to them, on the one hand to rebuke them for their sinful behavior, but on the other hand, he's writing to them to remind them of who they are. And so the first week, Pastor Jonathan pointed out to us that he wrote to them not to be saints, but that they were saints. And then last week we learned that uh, not only are they saints, they are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And because they are saints, and because they are the dwelling of God, Paul is writing them, and he's encouraging them that they need to remove the sin that's hindering the health and the holiness of their church. And so as we read our text today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and as we read our text today, what we're going to find out is that in order to remove the sin in their lives that's threatening their health and their holiness, They need to practice church discipline. And so what we're going to learn also is that in order for us to be a healthy and a holy church, we need to practice church discipline. So that's where we're headed. Here's the plan. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to define church discipline, because I'm sure that we all have a different mental image in our minds right now of what church discipline is. So I'm going to define it for us, and then we're going to walk back through the text And we're going to see that Paul's goal in exercising church discipline at Corinth is always redemptive. And so is our practice of church discipline. It's always redemptive. So if you would, grab your Bible, find 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to use a pew Bible, it's on page 897. Page 897, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses, so it won't take us long. So here's Paul's word to the Corinthian church. 
It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, or evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then we would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In the last sentence of our text, the Apostle Paul quoting Moses, he teaches us the plain and simple truth of church discipline. And that is purging the evil from among you. And so like I said before, I'm sure we all at this point, especially after reading that text, we all have a different mental image of what church discipline looks like. So I want to define church discipline for you for the sake of unity and clarity. And so I have a definition here. You can see it. Church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the congregation and its members. And I simplified it one step further. Church discipline simply equals removing sin. Now the author of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 5, that we should embrace church discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we have a definition. We know that the purpose of church discipline is to remove sin. We know we should embrace it. We know the Lord brings it to those whom he loves. But we have not answered one question that's still on your mind. How is church discipline carried out? And after reading the text, I'm sure that you have a very negative view of church discipline currently in your mind. But what if the text, what if what we read today is the exception to church discipline and not the rule? What if church discipline is largely a positive practice that we should all welcome, we should embrace, and we should join in? And it is. But to see that, you need to see that there's two types of church discipline. 
two types of church discipline. You can see them here, formative and corrective. And so the first type that I want to draw your attention to is formative discipline. This is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul was doing in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He was engaged in corrective discipline. But what I want you to see is that formative discipline is a very positive experience, and it should make up the majority of our church practice. So right now, we are engaged in church discipline. This is formative discipline. We've opened the Word of God together. For what purpose? For the purpose of growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so as we open the Word of God every week together, we recognize in our lives where we're not conformed to the image of Christ And so now we have an opportunity to repent and change. Just sitting and listening, we can become more like Christ. And not only is preaching and teaching formative discipline, virtually everything the church does as a community facilitates formative discipline. So think with me. Of course, this is formative discipline. What else do we do? We read Scripture. We study Scripture We practice the ordinances together. We take communion and we baptize. We get counseling. We fellowship. We exercise our spiritual gifts together. And so all of these positive, formative disciplines, they have one goal, and that is sanctification. And so sanctification, what is that? It's just removing sin from our lives and becoming more and more progressively conform to the image of Christ. That's our goal as a church. And so, if we would, as a community, as a church, if we would embrace the formative disciplines of the faith, we would never experience the negative and second type of church discipline, corrective discipline. Corrective discipline, we have it if we need it, But if we were all growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ together, we would never have to use the corrective discipline. But for the sake of the health and the holiness of the church, we do have it if we need it. And that's what Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 5. He is using corrective discipline in an attempt to restore the health and the holiness of the Corinthian church. And we learn the pattern of corrective discipline from Christ himself. So he teaches us this in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read that together. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. This is the pattern of corrective discipline. You can follow along with me. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. So you may not have picked up on the steps or the pattern of corrective discipline, but I'm just going to tell them to you. There's three steps. You go to your brother. If your brother is persisting in sin, 
that's threatening the health and the holiness of the church, you just go to them. Brother, I need you to repent of this sin. I need you to change for the sake of the dwelling place of God, for the sake of the church. And if he doesn't listen, then the next step Jesus taught us, you go to him with a group and you plead with him to repent of his persistent sin and to change. And then finally, excommunication. So Jesus, he was the original three strikes and you're out. Excommunication is the third step. So the goal of both types of discipline is to remove sin. Um, Like I said, the first is much more positive, the second is much more negative, and uh, we should all embrace the formative disciplines of the faith. Now, for some reason, we don't like to talk about church discipline in church. It's like one of those subjects we don't like to talk about for some reason. I'm not sure why. But if you just step back and if you just think about the steps of formative and corrective discipline, they're simply just logical. And not only should they be practiced in the church, but you see them practiced in every other group that you're a part of. So every group has an objective standard of right behavior. Your employer does, your school does, your sports team does, your family does. They all have formative and corrective disciplinary processes to help conform you to the ideal standard that's going to protect the health of their group. Amen? So I can give you an example. Where I work, we have what we call standards of excellence. So these are moral and character uh, requirements that I must embody for the sake of the health of where I work, right? And we have communication frameworks. So it's, it's patterns of, of speech, and it's how I interact with patients. And by doing that, by following these communication frameworks, I'm anticipating the needs of the patients. And so then that improves outcomes, So these objective standards of right behavior that my employer expects me to possess, I don't have them the first day I'm hired, right? They have to teach them to me. They have to use formative disciplinary processes to help me be built into that image. And then over time, if formative discipline doesn't work, what does your employer do? They come to you with corrective discipline, right? And if the corrective discipline doesn't work, what are you? You are excommunicated from your place of employment. So if the world uses these same patterns of formative and corrective discipline, how much more should the church, the dwelling place of God, be committed to formation and correction? Amen? So that's a brief outline of church discipline. Um, If you have any questions, come see me afterwards and I'll help clarify myself. But as we move back to the text, and what we've learned over the last four weeks, I think it's pretty apparent that formative discipline has failed in the Corinthian church, right? I think that's fairly obvious. So what we're going to see in our text today, we're going to walk back through it here in just a second, and what we're going to see in our text today is that Paul is about to use his apostolic authority. So when we read that passage in Matthew 18, You saw that the church has authority to correct the church. So Paul is about to use that apostolic authority that he possesses through corrective discipline in order to attempt to restore the health and the holiness of the Corinthian church. And one thing I want you to pay attention to, that as we walk back through the text, I just want you to pay attention to the redemptive nature and goal of Paul's interaction with the Corinthian church. So if you have your Bibles... We're going to be back in 1 Corinthians 5. 
I'm going to set the scene for you again, since it's been a few minutes since we read it. In verses 1 and 2, we see two major threats to the health and the holiness of the Corinthian church. And then we see one solution that's going to get them back on the road to health. So the first threat that we see is a brother who is involved in an unbelievably egregious sin. If you missed it, it's in verse 1 and you can reread it. Paul describes this sin as not even tolerated among the pagans. And if you remember from the first week, uh, Pastor Jonathan described the Corinthian culture. And for something to be off limits is to say a lot. Uh, that would be like us saying that uh, when you go to San Francisco, there are certain things that are off limits, right? So that would be a similar, uh, <laughs> similar thing for us. So that was the first threat to the health and the holiness. The second threat, it's less obvious, but it's equally threatening. The church was complicit in the brother's behavior. The church should have been mature enough through formative discipline to be able to handle this situation on their own, but they weren't, so Paul was now having to get involved. Paul turns to the church, and he says, And you all were arrogant and boastful. Should you not have mourned? They were boasting in this brother's offense, and they should have been mourning and should have been calling for repentance. And then finally, there's a solution. So the solution is step three of corrective discipline, and that is excommunication. Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So that's the scene. Now what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 3 through 8. And I want, to, I want you to see that Paul's use of corrective discipline has three redemptive results. Three redemptive results. And you'll see them here in just a second. You can just put them all up there. Three redemptive results. The first redemptive result of church discipline is the healing of the offending brother. You're going to see it in a second. Just bear with me. We're going to read verses 3 through 5, and we're going to focus on verse 5 to see the healing of the offending brother. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, here's verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan... For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And if your response is, what in the world is Paul talking about? That was my response too when I first read this. And it's a logical response because we want to take the word of God and we want to apply it to our own current situation. So what do we do with this statement from Paul? Um, I can tell you as I've worked through this passage that verse 5 is notoriously difficult to interpret. Um, I could give you a whole stack of interpretations and applications for this particular verse. But after studying the text and after coming to understand the Lord's heart through church discipline, I believe that this is what Paul has in mind. Paul has in mind that excommunication will lead this brother to repentance. Now we have to think like Paul for a second to see what he's thinking. So Paul sees two spheres or two realms that you can exist in. You can exist in the world, whose ruler is Satan, and where works of the flesh occur. Or you can exist in the realm of the church, where the Holy Spirit is ruler, and where works of the Spirit occur. So when Paul says, deliver this brother to Satan, 
He has in mind removing the brother from the sphere of the church and returning him to the sphere of the world or of the flesh and the devil. So then Paul's hope, what is his hope by doing this? Paul's hope is that through excommunication, the brother is being denied the life-giving fellowship of the saints and the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. So moving the brother from the sphere of the church to the sphere of the world should cause him to awaken to his sin and repent and be restored to the church. He should recognize when he's removed from the church that his source of life has been cut off. He should be like a branch who's been severed from a tree. So ideally then, he would repent and he would return back to the life-giving community of the church. I think what Paul wants this brother to have is like a prodigal son-like experience or perhaps an Israel in exile experience. He wants him to be cut off and sent out only to return when he realizes that life can only be found in his father's house. Life can only be found in the church, in the dwelling place of God. I know that sounds foreign, but we have to understand that Paul has a much higher view of the church than we probably possess. Paul has such a high view of the church as the dwelling place of God that he can see to be removed from that would genuinely lead somebody to repentance. Gordon Fee captures this well in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, Maybe the most significant thing we can learn from such a text is how far many of us are removed from a view of the church in which the dynamic of the Spirit was so real that exclusion could be a genuinely redemptive process. That's a high view of the church. Um, I pray that the church gets back to that intense of a place where the Spirit of God is present, that to be absent from that would cause you to be genuinely repentant. All right, second. The second way that we see the redemptive nature of church discipline is in verses 6 and then the first half of verse 7. So here we see that not only does the brother's excommunication lead to his healing, but it also leads to the health of the church community. So follow with me, verses 6 and the first half of 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. So after removing the brother, Paul turns to the church. He rebukes their complicit behavior. And then using a Jewish metaphor, Paul illustrates the dangerous consequences of allowing unrepentant sin to exist in the church. And so he says to them, do you not know that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so if that's not a familiar metaphor, uh, Paul is using a baking image. You have a lump of dough and you just need a little bit of of yeast in there that makes the bread dough rise. His point is just a little bit of something affects the whole group. And in this case, it is sin. 
We use a similar metaphor, if this one helps more. One bad apple spoils a whole barrel. It's the same picture. A little bit can have a major effect on the whole. So sin is like an infection uh, in a body. If it's not treated, then it eventually affects your whole body. Now here's the beauty of verses 6 and 7. Paul is not saying that we must purge the sin from among us to be something we are not. Paul is saying that you need to purge the sin from among you because of what you already are. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You need to remove the sin because of who you are. So the Corinthian church's motivation to remove sin from their lives and our motivation to remove sin from our lives is the work of Christ and what he's done on the cross. So because of Christ, we really are a new lump. We really are sinless. Therefore, we are morally and ethically required to remove known sin from our lives for the sake of the name of Christ. Paul teaches this much more fully in Romans 6, if you want to write that down and read it later, but verses 11 and 12 give us a glimpse into Paul's, Paul's idea here. It says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So sin in our lives Sin in the church that's known and tolerated is never benign. It's, it's like cancer. It's never just existing. It's either multiplying or it's being, being destroyed, right? So it's never benign in our lives. So we should be zealous through formative disciplines and corrective disciplines, if need be, to remove sin from our lives and from the community, so it doesn't negatively affect us. As the famous John Owen quote goes, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's just simply the nature of sin. So we already are, let me summarize this for you, where we've been so far. We are, if you have come to Christ in faith and repentance, we have been made holy. So our right response to his work on the cross is living a life of sanctification and putting forth an effort through formative discipline and corrective discipline to remove sin from our lives. And now, the third aspect of the redemptive results of church discipline. And this is the second half of verse 7 and verse 8. We see here the holiness of the church community. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is keeping with his Passover imagery here. And Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the Corinthian church that they are a holy people because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So if you remember in Exodus, uh, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, they had set themselves apart as holy because through faith they had taken the lamb, they had sacrificed the lamb, and in faith they had applied the blood of the lamb to their dwelling and the judgment of the Lord passed over. 
And so that's the imagery that Paul is using in the application of us. So when we see Christ, our Passover lamb, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, we, through faith, apply that to our lives and are therefore holy. So we have been saved, we are justified, and we are now a holy people. We are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit of God. And so because that is our reality in Christ, we should continuously celebrate that festival, not with uh, envy and strife, but with sincerity and truth. Amen? Now, Paul really shifts gears in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul begins to deal with a topic that he had previously written to them about that we don't, we don't have that letter. So we're not quite sure what Paul had written to them there. But apparently it was how they should interact with the culture and how they should interact with the church. And so let's read verses 9 through 13. And this is such a great passage because it's, it's so relevant to our current cultural context. Here's what Paul says, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul is simply saying, don't worry about your culture's holiness. Worry about your own holiness. And that is extremely relevant for the church today. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, and we are reminded that purging evil, purging sin from among us, it begins and ends with us. He says, what do we have to do with outsiders? And here's the error that has caused much division and much strife in our church, in our current cultural context, is that many believe that in order to remove sin from our midst, in order to restore the health and the holiness of the church, many believe that the first step is purging evil from the secular culture. That's not the first step. It's not what Paul teaches it's not what Christ teaches. The secular culture that we live in the midst of, they're not our biggest problem. The church not dealing with their own sin is our problem. Jesus gives us the example of how to interact with the secular culture. He ate and drank with sinners, and then he flipped tables over in the temple. That's how Jesus interacted. So we need to realize that to become a healthy and a holy church, it just begins and ends with us. We have means of grace. We have formative disciplines. We have corrective disciplines to, to create us into the image of Christ that we desire. The culture is not a threat to the church. 
I think that's very important to understand nowadays. The culture is not a threat to the church. So we must not believe the lie that if we just follow the right candidate, if we just follow the right political cause, if we just silence the right group of people, that the church will become healthy and holy. But that's not the truth. And over the last probably five to ten years, I don't know if you follow church trends very well, but the church in America is very divided, very divisive. Um, We are not the image that we want to be quite yet. And this is largely in part because we've engaged in culture wars instead of sanctification. We're so worried about what's going on outside the church that we've neglected our own holiness. And so I'm just pointing this out because because of our, our current cultural context of the church and because of our disunity and because of our lack of identity, I just, I just think it's important using Paul's words here just to show us that it's not the culture, um, but the church is its own problem. If you think of what Jesus says, Jesus says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So if a church is healthy and if a church is holy, there is nothing that is a threat to the church. If you think that a secular culture can be a threat to the church, you don't quite yet understand the nature of the church. The church has thrived for 2,000 years in cultures much worse than our own. And so, I would just encourage us um, to just take seriously these formative and corrective disciplines for our own sake. You know, we want to be witnesses to Christ. We want to be the image of Christ in our culture. And so, it just it simply starts with us and just forming that in ourselves. So I'll just remind you uh, one other example. Israel, they didn't go into captivity because of the Babylonian secular culture. They went into captivity because they neglected their own holiness. They failed to purge evil from among themselves. And so we must take Paul's advice to the Corinthians seriously for ourselves. Uh, We must do what Christ taught us to do. And that is to seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else will be added unto us. We really do live in a good time right now to be the church. We just need to embrace Christ. We need to embrace the disciplines of the faith, and we need to become like Christ and not worry about anything outside. And then at that point, we will be the light to the nations. We will be the light to our culture. So I would just encourage you to Consider these things. I would encourage you to embrace the formative disciplines of the faith. Uh, Begin to get into the Word of God. Uh, Find out where you're not conformed to the image of Christ. And and repent of that and change. and, And just do that day in and day out. And if you're not sure where to start with the formative disciplines of the faith, come and see me. I will personally help you get on track. Um, If you don't know where to begin, I will gladly show you the way. And so with that, uh, I just want to encourage you guys just to begin that in your own lives and, and everything will work out as Christ has said. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship together. Lord, we thank you uh, for these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote the church. 
Lord, they're very informative for us, very enlightening for us. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would just help us to, to take your word seriously. And Lord, I just pray that through your spirit and your word that we would be conformed to your image and that we would, that we would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Valley Church. If you were impacted by today's teaching or made a decision to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you, pray for you, and walk with you. To connect with us, visit valleychurchwv.com. There you will find resources on following Jesus and information about how to partner with us here at Valley Church as we seek, serve, and send disciples of Christ.